Good health is a crown worn by the healthy that only the ill can see. Your health really is your wealth. Join us for the next hour as we explore disease and attaining and maintaining good health. This is Dischem Medical Monday, brought to you by Dischem, pharmacists who care. This is the Dischem Medical Monday, and I'm Richard Sutton, author and performance coach. And today I'll be talking about something that is so pertinent, so relevant, and so much part of the times, and that is resilience. I'm actually standing in for Kath today, who's got a little bit of a cold. And the funny thing is that if we go back two and a half years, if someone had a cold, it was, ah, oh, you know, a couple of days and they're fine. Now all of a sudden a cold, it, maybe you have COVID, don't you have COVID? And, and it's just uh, just one of those things how a whole reality's changed. And that really is very much this theme. And just going a couple of steps back, you go back to two and a half years ago, and we think about that moment where Cyril Ramaphosa announced uh, the lockdowns and how we all felt our hearts were pounding and we we're sweating and it was just such an unknown such an uncertainty and we kind of think about how our personal lives are going to unfold our, our kids our businesses and and we've emerged out of that and we're pretty much sitting at a, a very different point within the, the COVID space but there's been tremendous casualties along the way and the, the crazy thing is that just as we get out of this particular this particular run or this particular crisis we enter into a new crisis and this new crisis is the ukraine we we have this country that's that's being impacted thousands of kilometers away and and we feel quite removed geographically but in reality we aren't removed it's it's one world one one universe in in many re respects and we're feeling it here we're feeling it here in many ways we're feeling it from a financial perspective we're feeling it from from an inflationary perspective i think inflation's at an all-time high at 6.5 percent that's the official figures but but it's, it's something that's felt, and if we combine that to the aftermath of COVID-19 and combine that with the fourth industrial revolution, we've got this rapid and exponential change. Everything is changing every single day. The pace of the world is, is just exponential, and, and we see it, and we see it with our children more than in any other area and in any other space. And we've had we've come through the civil unrest um, in July last year, which was was quite something for those who were in the middle of it, in the throes of it. And the, the, I was I was unfortunately in in KwaZulu Natal at the time. And we're also experiencing dramatic climate change, which is kind of fitting together with this incredibly large set. And we saw that with the floods in Natal again. Natal's been particularly hard hit over the last couple of years. So you combine the kind of the, this whole journey of COVID, the fourth industrial revolution, you have the Ukraine and we have climate change and we have civil unrest. And you can see why the major theme in the world right now and at this point in time is, is fundamentally resilience we we have to be able to get up after being knocked down we have to be able to navigate more complexity and more uncertainty we have to overcome those challenges and those failures that are, are just so common these days and it was at one time something that was a luxury to develop at this point in time it's more than that it's now an expectation we all have to become resilient in the world that we live in 
When I come back, I'm going to be talking about what resilience is not and what resilience is this thing that we have to develop. This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Dischem, pharmacists who care. I'm Richard Sutton and I'm talking about resilience, this thing that we have to develop. And for the last 70 years, scientists and researchers were trying to unpack what it is, this element, this thing that's fundamental to survival and to success in our future. And for many decades, it was perceived that resilience is very much about mental toughness. It's about grit. It's about perseverance. And those are admirable and very necessary skills that we need to develop throughout the course of our lives. But what has been established, especially in the last five years, is that resilience is far more complex. It's far bigger. In fact, resilience is about 16 aspects that converge and that create this incredibly exquisite set. Some of them include the ability to protect the brain against atrophy. Uh, how we grew up as, as children actually affects our resilience. It affects our stress coping and stress responses. Our intrinsic personality, whether we're neurotic or optimistic, affects our resilience. The ability to develop our existing coping skills, but more importantly, acquire new ones determines resilience. Support, social buffering, all kind of influential in resilience, as well as confidence, directed focus, cognitive reappraisal, health behaviors, metacognitive, the list goes on. I mean, there's so many factors. But at its core, if you have to deconstruct resilience and break it down into one thing, that one thing alone, what is it? And this was a lesson that I learned many, many years ago in 2007. So throughout the journey of my career, I had one aspiration, and the aspiration was to be part of a winning Olympic team. And that aspiration started when I was 10. And I worked my way up through different levels of sports, and finally the day arrived. It was the most incredible thing. I got this offer, this, this offer from the Chinese Olympic Federation to take on the role of athletic director for their national team. Massive, massive opportunity. And up until that point, it was all about kind of dreams and aspirations. And I never really understood the phrase, be careful what you wish for, because one day it might come true. But as it turns out, I kind of signed the contract within a couple of weeks and I was off to Beijing and very excited by this new role. Absolutely like head over heels. I, mean, I couldn't tell you how. I mean, this was it. This was it. The, the dream that I that had it had become a reality. And I arrived in Beijing and it was a very different environment. A uh, couple of days and I, I realized there was no support structure. I was very isolated, no internet, no cell phone, etc. I had no control, no say over the decisions that affected me or the team. I was in the senior position, but I actually was completely marginalized and it's a pretty stressful situation. The demands were very rigorous. Uh, when I said the demands were rigorous, it was seven-day working weeks. Uh, the hours were pretty long. It was about 7 to 11. It was just absolute kind of madness <laughs> in many respects. But the funny thing is that so many of these stresses that I was experiencing at that time in 2007 were the stresses and all the stresses that we've really been thrown into, into the deep end, I might say, with COVID-19. Um, just excessive demands, long working hours, the nights converge into the days, the weekends into the weeks. So it's, I think some, to, to some extent, everyone can relate to this. 
And I must say, the first month was okay. I was just kind of holding it together, piecing it together. Still kind of excited about this opportunity to be with a team that could win the Olympic Games. And uh, it just got tougher and tougher and tougher. And eventually, my health started corroding. And I, I didn't understand why. I was doing everything I could to look after my health. And the first thing I was experiencing was just kind of run down and colds all the time and flus and... And uh, then it was physical pain, then I wasn't sleeping, and it just became more exponential. Uh, it just magnified every single week. I was living on painkillers and antibiotics and whatever I can get my hands on just to get through the day. And that was a physical reality, but emotionally I started becoming very down um, and very dejected. I just didn't feel that I wanted to be part of this, this journey anymore, and it, it was a very hard realization. And I probably would equate it to mild depression. I can't imagine that uh, it's, uh, it would be anything less. And then what also happened or also unfolded was I started becoming mentally checked out. I just couldn't think straight. I had no clarity, I had no focus, attention, goal, orientation, motivation. Everything just disappeared. It wasn't me. And my whole personality had changed in response to the chronicity of the stress. It was just too much, too hard too long so how I got through this this period is every single day at about 12 p.m. I would say to myself one more day I'll do one more day and then I'm going to resign and I'd kind of finish the rest of the day and the next day I'd repeat the cycle one more day then you resign the, the truth is they wouldn't let me resign anyway it was too close to the Olympic Games but it was a way of getting me through this and I just kind of was was getting through Getting through the process, but but just hanging on, I was weathered and tethered. I had grit, I had perseverance, it was very clear. I had mental toughness, I'd been through things in my past that kind of helped me with these skills, but these skills didn't seem to be having an effect, the effect that I wanted or needed at the time. And uh, it got to a point where there, there wasn't much lower I could go. And then I got this incredible break, this lucky break. And the lucky break was that I had a very extensive experience in the sport of tennis, and it was the national sport of China. And they had five very gifted individuals, very gifted players, that they were sending to Wimbledon, which was a compulsory event just before the, the Olympic Games. And they wanted me to be with the team because they had certain individuals who had this incredible potential, and they wanted to see some success. And it was, it was amazing. I, I get onto the plane and, and I've got cell phone access again and you know, I'm back on the internet and I've got communication with the outside world and I arrive in London and literally within three days of this new reality, you know, kind of all, all the liberties and, and normal work days and less demands and having a voice again and seeing friends and, and socializing, being connected with the outside world, all the things that I'd lost and regained, all of a sudden, I was back to my old self. I was motivated. I had goal orientation. I was like, uh, my mood had lifted exponentially. Physical pain disappeared within three, four days. It was like just unbelievable how my health improved. And we were going to be in London for a good period of time, five weeks. And the first week, amazing. Second week, amazing. Third week, uh, pretty good. And... Uh, we started getting kind of to the end of the tournament and there was only one player left 
one player, literally one player left in the draw. And it, it was absolutely nerve-wracking because she had got to the semi-finals, but she was facing a formidable opponent, Serena Williams. And Serena Williams, only Venus Williams had her number at that stage in time. And it suddenly dawned on me that we're going home. Even, even you know, kind of <laughs> with this, this incredible four-week period behind me, it's, it's, it affected me and affected me pretty negatively. And I started feeling down and all the symptoms of, of what I'd been going through in Beijing started re-emerging, the, the physical pain. And I thought, I've got to snap out of this. I've got to be motivated uh, for this individual. And I, I rushed down to the gym um, to try and to try and break the pattern. And it's in that environment something most spectacular, incredible change. And it changed my reality and definitely in my understanding of resilience. And I'm going to tell you all about that after the break. This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Dischem, pharmacists who care. I'm Richard Sutton, author and performance coach, and I'm talking about resilience this ability to get up after being knocked down to be successful in an uncertain future. So where I left off was that I had these struggles and challenges that in, in a certain environment and a certain context were overwhelming in terms of my emotional, mental and physical states and I'd now been almost unleashed in, in, a, in a, an environment that was so conducive to health and well-being and I was really kind of thriving in that environment and then the realization of a return to the old world, that world that had been so oppressive. So I go down to the gym in order to try and snap myself out of this emotional state and, and this negative dialogue that I was going into and I'm on the bike and next to me on the bike is an iconic figure. Her name is was Billie Jean, Billie Jean King. And I'd got to know Billie Jean through my work with Martina Navratilova who was one of my first clients in professional tennis. And uh, we got talking for a little bit, and Billie, Billie Jean's an incredibly positive individual, and she is just talking about how it's a new era for Chinese tennis, and, and I have to say it was. I mean, most of those uh, female players be ended up at one or two in the world in terms of rankings. It was like the most remarkable era um, that China's ever had. And it was amazing to be part of it, actually. And uh, we got talking about the tennis, and, and she, about five minutes into it, she, she asked me this question, you know, what, you're not yourself, you, you, you don't seem to have the same energy and, and vibrance, are you, are you okay? And up until that point, I hadn't communicated any of my challenges, any of my struggles, any of the impact that being in this environment, this oppressive environment had had on me. And I saw this as a safe place and safe opportunity. And she, she was one of those iconic figures I, I really had tremendous respect for her and, and admiration and I, I start basically just telling her about the challenges I was facing and and all the hardships and and the lack of support and the excessive demands and no control and no authority and injustice perception and everything that was going on in my life and uh, she listens very patiently and she said look I'm going to tell you two things two things that might help you in this situation and I'm waiting eagerly. I'm, in my heart of hearts, I wanted to say, you know, I'm going to find you a top player on the WTA tour and, and you're going to be out of Beijing and you're going to be back in this world in no time, you know, literally within the next few days. So that's what I wanted to hear. I knew that was never going to materialize. So basically, I was, I was looking for my old reality. 
And uh, she said, the first thing she says to me is, and it, it was quite a powerful statement, is that pressure is a privilege. Pressure is a privilege. Uh, at that moment, I kind of like stopped, paused, and I thought about it, and it's a powerful statement. And I was just kind of digesting it, and it, it really made a lot of sense. I was processing. But the next statement that you made was the statement that really changed my reality and changed my perception of resilience, and ultimately my future reality. And the next statement she said was, champions adapt. Champions adapt. Now, up until this point, I wanted to be a champion. I mean, I was in this world to be like these individuals in many respects, to learn from these individuals, grow with these individuals in my own, in my own journey. And I realized that up until this point, I'd gone into this environment, this new environment, with pre-existing notions, pre-existing ideas, skills that have been affected in Russia, skills that have been affected in Germany, skills that have been affected in the US, skills that have been affected in South Africa, but they were not effective in my new reality. I was bringing a 1.0 version of myself to a 2.0 reality, and it just didn't cut it. And this made a lot of sense, and we kind of finished the conversation, and these two statements really kind of played on my mind. And uh, as anticipated, the last player in the event lost in the semifinals that night on the back, uh, plane back to Beijing, and the whole night on the plane didn't sleep at all. I was just thinking about pressures of privilege, and I think about all the people I studied with, all the people I work with, how they would want this position, this position to be part of a, a potentially winning Olympic team at, at a senior level. And I made a little note, put it on my computer, and just put that, that statement, pressure is a privilege, to remind myself every single day that this is not a gift. This is not a something that gets handed to you frequently. This is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, and I've got to make the most of it. And I've got to see it like that. Because up until now, my personal narrative was negative my personal dialogue was negative i was telling myself about all the negative things that existed in that environment and not seeing the bigger picture the bigger picture is this just incredible journey that i was on so that i had got down but the bigger challenge was that i wanted to be this champion i wanted to adapt i wanted to be successful in this environment more than anything and i didn't know how to and i think that's one of the struggles that we all have in these situations. So I get to Beijing and we arrive and go, go off to the Olympic Training Center, meet with some of the players and, and I say, look, the only way I'm really going to be able to adapt is to, is to understand them better, understand my environment better. And the only way I'm going to do that is to attempt to learn the language. And I, <laughs> I say attempt because I was so bad. I mean, I tried my heart out. I, I, I really did. But the problem with, with Mandarin for uh, someone who speaks English is that there's four different tones. So you can be saying the right word, but you're using the wrong tone, which its meaning becomes completely distorted. And, and people look at me like I've lost my mind. Like, what am I saying? But what I did was I asked five senior players to teach me five words a day, 25 words a day in context within in like kind of the work setting. And they gladly did. I was quite surprised. And they gladly did. And it was a, a great source of amusement as I fumbled around with these words and looked like a complete buffoon. 
But um, it did break down walls and break down barriers. And I did get to understand the culture so much better and each individual so much better. And it gave me the confidence to go into Beijing and kind of break my chains and, and, and really see this with a new lens and, and a new perspective. And I started changing. I started evolving. So for the last seven, eight months, my whole narrative was, I'm going to resign tomorrow. I'm going to resign tomorrow. I want to get out of this. I hate this. I want to get out of this. I, want, I can't stand this. I'm not coping. I'm not. That was my narrative. And all of a sudden, I just saw it from, from a new vantage point. And as the days progressed, that negative dialogue started to disappear and a, a new reality emerged. I started loving my job. I started the passion that I had for my work had come back again and my physical health had improved. And, and by the time we got to Olympics, I was in probably the best shape of my life. It was like the most incredible thing. And the Olympics came and went pretty, pretty hard two weeks. The team won, and it was an amazing success, first time in history that China had achieved this, this amount of success. And to be part of that was an incredible privilege. But here I had my opportunity. Here I had that thing. For so long, all I wanted was to be out of the environment. All I wanted was to leave. All I wanted was my old reality, like we all want our world before COVID. And now... This, you know, here I've got the, the opportunity to leave and I get offered an extension on contract and what did I do? I took it because I began to love my environment, my team, the people in my team, the culture, China, Beijing. I absolutely loved it. I didn't want to leave and I stayed for an extra two and a half years. It was the best two and a half years of my life. And that is the power, the power that we have to shape our realities. And if I were to say, this thing that we're looking for, if we want to overcome uncertainty, challenge, change, failure, setbacks, whatever it is, if we want to get up after being knocked down repeatedly, we have to successfully adapt within ourselves to stress, challenge, change, adversity. And we've got to do this mentally, we've got to do this physically, and we've got to do this emotionally. And there's been so much research in this space, but the real research articles and, and papers that have changed my perception of resilience emerged in around 2012. The, the first paper was a paper on 12 Olympic champions. So looking at 12 individuals within the sporting world who had been able to achieve success that was unparalleled. They were able to overcome setbacks, adversities, failure, pressure, obstacles, failures, and every time it counted, every time it mattered, they were able to pull out the gold. Now, I've worked with a lot of athletes. I've worked with over five, 600 Olympic, like not champions, but Olympians. And one thing I can say is that our perception of what it takes to win a gold medal is completely distorted. We think it's just pure talent and pure ability. All athletes have ability. All athletes have talent at that level. There's a differentiator. And the differentiator is more emotional mental than anything else. And this is what this study wanted to unpack because it's, it's a very well-known phenomenon that all individuals, all of us, no one is exempt from stress. No one is exempt from pressure. No one is not, is not going to have a setback, an obstacle, and a failure. We're all going to go through that. We don't get a smoother path. Sometimes it happens when you're young. Sometimes it happens in the middle of our life. Sometimes it happens later in our life. Sometimes it happens continuously, which is more often the case. So what is it that these champions possess from a psychological standpoint 
that we can learn from, that we can apply to our own lives. Because we often see the world of a, a sportsman so distant from ours, so removed from ours. How can we relate to them? But the reality is, and this is going back to about eight years old as an athlete, you're exposed to constant fatigue. Okay, no, I can identify that. Ongoing pain, can certainly identify that. Disappointments, can identify that. Failures, identify that. Financial pressure, identify that. Premental relationships, identify that. Isolation, identify that. Demands and intolerance, well, can identify with that. Politics, loneliness, oh, can identify with that. Fundamentally, their world, their reality is, is, a, is an amplified version of our reality, especially following COVID. And the researchers were trying to unpack what it is, what these factors are. Now, that identified fundamentally six major psychological traits with two fundamental behaviors. But the most important of those fundamental behaviors that these Olympic champions possessed was the fact that every time they got into a stress, a challenge, every time they had a failure, every time they had a setback, every time they were subjected to pain, every time they had a disappointment, every time their world felt re removed from them, the, the floor had been taken away from under their feet. They saw that as an opportunity to grow themselves. They saw that as an opportunity to develop themselves. They saw that as an opportunity to master their new reality. Now, why it's so relevant is that we don't choose these challenges in our life. They're imposed upon us. But this group of individuals chooses a life of challenge. And only a select group master the challenge. And one of the greatest examples of this, this ability to, to find the gift that's embedded in the crisis and that sometimes you've got to dig deep because the pain is just so overwhelming, is the story of Jonathan, Jonathan Edwards. Now, Jonathan Edwards was one of those kids at school who was just damn good at everything, and it was so frustrating. <laughs> I think we've all been there where you just have these kids who can just, there's nothing they can't do. They're just like brilliant at everything, and he was that kid, and he was just good at every sport, and academically he was, he was brilliant. But he was one of kind of those master, master of none and, and expert at everything. It's, it's like a very kind of common situation. And his particular passion was the triple jump. It was, and he was pretty good at it. But he never won anything nationally. And, but he would win his school meets and his school events. And in competition, it was pretty solid. But he wanted to pursue it. His parents believed in him. There was strong belief from his, his father and mother. And, and they really believed he could do something with it later in life. But... They didn't have a lot of confidence. And when I say a lot of confidence, that confidence that he can just give up his education and go into professional sports. So what they all decided collectively is when he finishes school, he's not going to become a professional athlete. He's actually going to go and get a really good degree, a physics degree, which he did. And he nailed it, shot the lights out. Gets to the end of, finishes his degree, he's uh, 23 years old in his size. Now he still wants to pursue this, this dream of athletic champion. So... His thing is the triple jump, and he commits himself to one year, one year of full-time training, full commitment to his passion. And he does that, and he kind of, all the disciplines that are needed, all the sacrifices that are needed, he's changed his diet, he's training all day, he's kind of, you know, his, his relationships have been marginalized, everything for this goal. And incredibly, 
I mean, you know, he's one of those guys that frustrates you because he, he can just do anything. Incredibly, he qualifies for the Olympic Games. One year of training. Can you believe it? So he, he arrives in Seoul, this relative newcomer, completely intimidated by the environment because here you've got all you know, these icons of the sport. And he places 23rd in the world in his first Olympic Games. One year of training. I mean, I, I just, you can understand the motivation and the excitement. That is unbelievable. But he's, he's not young. He's 24 years old now. So he decides that he's going to commit another four years. Because if he can achieve this in one year, what is the possibility? What is the potential that exists in that four-year period? So now he's a full-time athlete, more stringent. He's more commitment, more training, more, everything. Like it's, it's a world on steroids. And without the steroids, of course. And uh, so another four years goes by. So now he's been a professional athlete for five years. He qualifies for Barcelona. There's high expectations on him. Puts everything into it. And everyone's expecting amazing things from him. Four years over and above the one year. And he places Stone Cold Lost. Lost. Five years, he's gone backwards. All that effort, he's gone backwards. Oh, how would it make us feel? Five years of effort and we're going backwards. We'd give up. And if you as parents, you say, look, Jonathan, well, my boy, well done. I mean, you, you've been to two Olympic Games. You've done amazingly well. You know, let's take that amazing degree or that incredible degree that you've got and run with it. And uh, he decides, no, this is not where his journey ends. He's going to commit to the next Olympic Games. And now we're talking 1996. And two years into training, now, now just consider that he hasn't won a single medal anywhere. But two years into training, one of the worst things that any athlete could face happens to him. He succumbs or he contracts the Epstein-Barr virus, and it's a virus associated with chronic fatigue. So every time he trains hard, he gets sick, he's in bed for days, weeks. Every time he feels stressed and overwhelmed, he's in bed for days and weeks. And it's an extremely challenging set, and if you're lucky, you get out of this in six months. If you're not lucky, it's several years. And it seems like everything is over. Now, we, we're looking at seven years, seven years of sacrifice, seven years of commitment, seven years of discipline, seven years of passion, seven, everything. And it seems to be over. It's over. He, Jonathan Edwards is sitting in bed. He can't get out of bed for weeks. But instead of seeing it as over, he sees this as an opportunity. Because the one thing he realized he hasn't looked at is his technique, his jumping technique from a critical standpoint. And while he's in bed, he sees this as a time where he's going to review his technique and he's going to develop. He's going to develop himself as an athlete. He's going to find out where, where he's weak, where he's strong, and, and, and make some changes. And after the break, I'm going to tell you what those changes were. This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. I'm Richard Sutton, author and performance coach, and I'm talking resilience. So now we have Jonathan Edwards, who's 
who's gone through seven years of failure, seven years of setbacks, seven years of disappointments, and he's now in bed and he's reviewing footage of him jumping. And while he's lying in bed, he picks up technical insufficiencies. He identifies that he's not strong enough. There's, there's like this fundamental overhaul of his reality. Now, for most of us with that setback, we just throw in the towel and we, we don't keep at it. And he, he was really persistent in, in this respect. But he makes a decision. He makes a decision that if he gets better, he's going to make these changes, these technical changes. He's going to make changes to his health, his strength. He's going to make changes to his life. He's going to be very adaptable and very creative in that adaptability. And remarkably, within a few months, Jonathan Edwards recovers and he now applies these new ideas and new concepts to his, his jumping technique and finds a really good strength coach and improves his strength. And, and by the summer of 1995, he's a different jumper. He's an absolute, like, it's, it's remarkable. But we're still sitting with eight years of failure now, eight years of setbacks, eight years of nothing, you know, like just all your efforts been in vain and perceivably and I'm just put it in our personal context how we would feel we're trying so hard at something for eight years and just nothing's forthcoming what we'd be giving up we'd, we'd throw in the towel the lack of confidence would be very evident very transparent so he begins the the summer season and he's jumping really well these adjustments in that were developed in that time of, of darkness, that time of crisis, they're paying off. And at the very first meet, um, he goes out for his first jump and he, like an unbelievably powerful jump. I mean, just fundamentally just short of the world record. The world record at the time was 17 meters, 97. And I think he jumped 70 meters, 68 or something like that. And, and everyone kind of stood up and, who is this individual? Who is this guy? And uh, goes for his second attempt about 20 minutes later. And the wind's blowing pretty heavily. So if he does jump pretty well, it's, it will be disqualified because of, of the wind uh, factor. And he goes out and he jumps and he jumps literally. He takes off and he doesn't come down. And he, he actually performs a jump of 18 meters 43. Never in the history of the sport has anyone done anything like this. The crowd goes mad. Everyone is standing up. Where did he come from? Eight years of a non-competitive like individual athlete, and all of a sudden, he is the guy to beat. Of course, the record wasn't, didn't stand but because of the win factor, but he firmly announced that he was there. He, were, he had arrived. And uh, what happened is two weeks later, he's competing in Barcelona, and incredibly, Jonathan Edwards becomes the world record holder. He jumps 17 meters 98, beating the world record by 0.1. Officially the world record holder. Everyone's in disbelief. Now, his whole career he was chasing. He was a guy who was dis disregarded, ignored, not acknowledged in any way shape or form and, and now all of a sudden he's the guy to beat and everyone wants to interview him every magazine wants him on the cover and he's the world record it's in the most incredible turnaround and the turnaround all emanated from that point that lowest point in his life that crisis where he was in bed when it was all over when it was all lost everything changed at that moment but he wasn't done in august it was the world champion 
the World Championships and, and there was this tremendous expectation on Jonathan Edwards that he, he needed to perform. He, he was the world champion. And uh, it's a different pressure. And he goes into the world championship knowing this pressure and not being comfortable with this pressure. It's additional stress. And no one believed that he could cope with the stress. And he goes out for his first jump and, and he's looking particularly explosive. And for some reason and somehow he soaks up the pressure and he jumps a new world record, 18 meters, 16. The first time officially 18 meters have been broken. Not only is he the world record holder, he has broken a milestone. But he did something at that event that has never been done in the history of athletics. 20 minutes later, he goes out for his second jump. And his second jump, he jumps even further, 80 meters, 26. Basically, two world records in 20 minutes. Now, here's the thing, is that we look at this... So sure, that's amazing. You know, from from these dark days and all the failures, now he's the world record holder. At in, when is this? 1995. The crazy thing is that Jonathan Edwards is still the world record holder in the triple jump, but he wasn't done. 1996, he was going to the Olympics and he was in search of this gold, in search of this gold, wanting this gold, so desperately. Again, now he's, he's this undisputed world record holder. He is the guy to beat. No one can beat him. And he gets to the Olympic Games, performs incredibly, never won a medal at the Olympic Games, and manages to get a silver medal. Just kind of couldn't put it together in the, in the last jump or two. Now, he's pretty gray. At this stage, he's not a young man. He's probably the oldest competitor on the track. If you're Jonathan's parents, his friends, his partner, whoever you are, you're going to be saying to Jonathan, Jonathan, you've got a silver medal. You're the world record holder. You've been through three Olympic Games. You've had eight years of failures and, and successive setbacks, and you overcame it. You're the poster child for triumph of adversity. Go do your thing. Jonathan Edwards says no. His passion, his joy, his meaning in life is in search of this gold, this gold medal. And he commits himself another four years. Now, this is a one, a very long career. Two, he's a very old athlete in athletic terms. And he again qualifies for the Sydney Olympics. And in 2000, Jonathan Edwards achieves the gold. Most incredible feat in sport. And for me, this is probably one of the most powerful lessons that anyone could ever learn is that no matter what your past is no matter where you come from no matter how many setbacks you've had no matter how many failures no matter how frustrated you are no matter what the pain is and how dark the times have been we have the power to create new realities but that power is unlocked by something called cognitive reappraisal which Jonathan Edwards was so good at doing. Or should we say reframing? And in order to reframe successfully, we've got to ask ourselves four questions. And those four questions are, when confronted with pain, setback, crisis, failure, disappointment, you've got to ask yourself, what can I learn from this? 
So question number one, what can I learn from this? The second question, and sometimes it's hard to find that, that answer. The second question you have to ask yourself is, could there be positive outcomes in the future from this event or from this challenge? The third question is, how has this challenge enhanced me? How has it helped me grow emotionally, physically, mentally? And the fourth question we need to ask ourselves is, could there be a deeper meaning behind the event? And if we're able to answer those four questions every time we're confronted with something that's overwhelming, something that's difficult, something that's challenging, we can shape our reality. We can't control the events that we're confronted with. We certainly can't, can't control the past. But through cognitive reappraisal, through reframing, we can shape our future. And that is what Jonathan Edwards did so well. When we're back, I'm going to be discussing another key behavioral trait just briefly and summarizing today's session. This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. I'm Richard Sutton, author and performance coach, and I've been talking resilience for the last hour. Now, there's two major themes that have come up in, in the last hour. And, and the first theme is that we have to grow in our adaptability. We have to be committed to change because that is what the world demands of us right now. At the same time, we have to take on a different lens. And when we do experience setbacks and failures and disappointments and challenges, we need to see the, the light that is embedded in it, the light that is embedded in the darkness, the gift that is, is deeply rooted in the setbacks, in the difficulties, in the failures. But there's another important behavioral trait that we can learn from these professional athletes and the incredible study that I cited earlier. And this particular skill is known as metacognition. And fundamentally, metacognition is the ability to control the way we feel, to control the way we think, and most importantly, to control the way we act. And we have this power. Now, in order to achieve this, it's not an, an easy thing. It's something that we're going to require tremendous practice and is, is quite difficult. But in order to achieve this metacognition, this power over one's own thoughts and emotions and actions, we have to start with the dialogue that we have with ourselves. So often in life we get caught into this negative spiral, negative vortex, and everything we do and everything we say, we, we so harden ourselves and, and we have this, this perception that is, is very demeaning. How could I make this mistake? How could I have not overcome this challenge? How could I not seen that coming? Instead, we need to start nurturing our inner self. We need to have the conversation where we lift ourselves up and, and remind ourselves of the gifts that we have and the talents that we have and the abilities that we have and the mission that we have in life. And we have to change that dialogue. And there's some brilliant athletes who are really good at this. And 
have tremendous success with it. Novak Djokovic is one of those athletes. But at the same time, we have to be open to a new reality. And so many of us were very closed off, closed off. You know, we were waiting for COVID to end so we can go back to our old reality, our old world. And then we kind of became, I get, I guess, just reconciled with the fact that the the old reality is not coming back, but we're still not fully open to a new future, a future that we can create, a future that we can cre- we can shape. But we have to be optimistic, which is another key factor in metacognition. Now, optimism is not toxic positivity, where what we do in any given situation is try and find the positive. We almost distance ourselves from the reality that we live in. Optimism is about acknowledging that this time, this place, this space is hard. It is painful. It is difficult. But I believe in a better future. I believe in hope. And optimism is about one word, is hope. And compounded with this, in terms of creating metacognition, is an important ability to apply different approaches to existing issues. And so often we get caught with the old skills that we developed at certain times of our life. They were very, very good then. And we're bringing them to this new gunfight and they're not working. And we start, we have to start exploring new avenues, new ways in which we can approach the challenges of our life, approach the challenges of our time. But a lot of this is dependent on goal orientation. And when it comes to COVID and the Ukraine and, and every factor that's affecting us right now, it's hard to have goals or goals to survive, to get to tomorrow. That's the goal. It's like a crazy thing. But for us, for humans, to feel fulfilled, to feel that we have purpose, have meaning in life, we have to be moving forward. We have to be growing spiritually, emotionally, physically, mentally. And if we are not growing on that level, if we are not evolving on that level, we slip back. And this is the time to put back those goals, not those lofty long-term goals. I want to be in Israel when I'm 74 or whatever it is. It's too far. It's too far removed. It's goals right now, this week, this month. Of the next two months or three months, what do I need to achieve in my personal life, in my family life, in my spiritual life? What do I need? Where do I need to go? And then lastly, we have to remember one thing. Is that all the high performance cultures of our time, whether in business or in other contexts, are, are largely drawn from sporting philosophies and ideals. And unfortunately, these cultures forget one thing. Is that... These models are built on this push-pull factor. There's a time to give it everything, and there's a time to rest and recover. And that is that big piece, is that when we're in crisis, when we're under stress, we become hypervigilant. We don't shut down until we have the solution. You've got to compartmentalize. You've got to take a moment in every single day to wind down in order to create balance within self. And this is really where I just want to wrap up. There's been a lot to take in. 
a lot of very important messages. And if we're able to apply it to our lives, it can really enhance and change our lives. But I think, in summary, the world is an uncertain and challenging place and we have to become more adaptable and we have to reinvent ourselves constantly as part of this new reality. We also have to start looking at challenges with a new lens. And there's so much more to this narrative, so much more to the story. And uh, I hope that I'll, I'll be able to take you through the next journey in, a, in the very near future.